Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined again by Mark Nelson. He's the Managing Director of the Radiant Energy Fund. Mark is also a leading researcher and speaker on the status and prospects of nuclear and alternative energy around the world. He holds degrees in mechanical, aerospace, and nuclear engineering, and relevant today, he also holds a degree in Russian literature. <laughs> Mark, welcome back to Decouple. Thanks, Chris. So, Mark, today um, we're going to be uh, cracking the nut of, uh, of Mother Russia, as we, uh, we've been sort of joking around affectionately. Um, as you know, on Decouple, I've been... I guess profiling different nations and and the history of their nuclear industry and their buildouts. Um, most recently, um, we touched on on China with uh, Francois Morin of the uh, World Nuclear Association. Um, but Russia definitely deserves its place um, in the uh, in the decouple archives. Um, you know, just a few things that really stood out for me. I think when we look at the I guess, non-atrophying uh, nuclear sectors around the world, the healthy industries. I think Russia and China certainly stand out at the forefront now. I mean, certainly Korea, Japan had their moment in the, uh, in the spotlight and, and maybe there's still, uh, you know, many more years of, uh, of productivity to come. But I mean, Russia has been at this for 75 years. China, you know, just sort of got going 30 years ago in 1991. Russia's dominating the export um, market. So lots to unpack here. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to chatting about it with you. And so, you know, by way of that famous sort of decouple self-introduction, um, you've got a degree in Russian literature. I understand you you play some uh, Russian piano music, some Rachmaninoff. Uh, tell us about, you know, just your personal interest in Russia. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So I have no family connections of any kind to Russia. Um, go as far back as I, I've tried. I've, there's nothing no connections to actually anything in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and I grew up in Oklahoma at a time when um, public schools like mine were just closing down all their surplus languages left over from the Cold War. I mean, funding was kind of running dry. So um, a few years, at, if I were a few years older, I might've been able to study Russian in public school in Oklahoma even, but uh, they were busy stripping out all the programs and enrollment was following. Um, all around the country, I learned later in uh, Russian and Slavic departments. But I just had this love for Russian music um, that I got from, from studying piano and from my dad. And I had the opportunity to study a language my last year in high school when I went to a, a private school. And I chose Russian almost out of a basket. I fell in love with it. I thought it was a magnificent mystery, that whole part of the world, that chunk of literature. Uh, honestly, politics and the aesthetic approach taken by the, the communists and, and the Soviet Union was fascinating to me too. Um, it was just so exotic, right? Mm. So large, so mysterious. And that's enough to draw somebody into a language, I think. The big step for me was staying as a Russian student when I left for engineering school as an undergrad. And uh, it was made for some pretty rough couple of years to do both at the same time. I think that uh, I, I made it work most by just going over to Russia uh, for summers. That was pretty interesting for me because I'd never, you know, I was 
from a part of the country and I'm <laughs> people just didn't travel all that much. I'd never really been overseas much as a kid. I mean, at all, actually. The first time I ever saw Europe was through the eyes of a foreign language student living with a family in Russia. That's the first time I ever saw any part of Europe. Wow. Um, wow. Except for the except for a German airport on the way over. Sure. So I couldn't tell what was strange because it was Europe, what was strange because I was living in one of the biggest cities in Europe. I'd never properly lived in a big city before. Couldn't tell what was weird because it was Russian or what was peculiar to St. Petersburg. And then trying to understand what maybe was just strange about my host family or even myself right. made it very confusing. Those, those few summers in Russia where I still had to go back over and over years later to understand uh, what I saw and what the experience mm. meant. Yeah, I've had the like, experience of, of traveling a fair amount. And I think the biggest like culture shock moment I had was actually going down to Cuba in 2005. So, I mean, this was sort of after the special period, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but just a remarkably different society, right? With And I'm sure by the time you were in Russia, there'd been a lot of changes that had happened in terms of all the liberalization and whatnot. But I mean, being in Cuba at that time with all the legacy of uh, you know, there's just no advertising on the streets other than government propaganda, for instance, just it was just stepping into a completely different world. And I imagine there's some of that, some some of that uh, in terms of your your experiences over there. Yeah, so that that strange uh, sort of strange feeling I, I felt but couldn't put words to. I, I think after enough time looking back, I think it's that almost every Russian above the age of, I don't know, shall we say 25, has knowledge, has living knowledge of loss, of big yeah. losses. And although in the last, in the last couple of decades, those losses tend to be in terms of um, maybe systems of meaning collapsing or changing or falling apart overnight or ways of living perhaps, um, for any older generations in Russia, there was a living memory of great loss of life, yeah. um, of immense loss of uh, material, of housing, of cities. You know, um, even before World War II, where Russia suffered almost as much as the rest of the rest of Europe, maybe even the rest of the world put together. Yeah. Um, Soviet Union, perhaps it's better to say the civil war and and the um, political oppression in the 30s has just been absolutely ferocious uh, world war one before that and repeated wide-scale famines that um although they weren't absolutely gone in europe of of the turn of the 1900s they were they were much more a living memory in russia and the, and the, the russian empire and then uh i guess the early soviet union so what does it mean to have that in that direct lived knowledge of immense loss and, and sort of uh, of the chaos that lurks just around the bend? I think it means that it changes what you see as absolutely necessary or absolutely vital right. for life or for living. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what it will mean in the future for Russia, but it means that there are there's a sense of a need to secure at all times an order that you can at least live with. Right, right. And this actually ties us into our story of Russia's nuclear program today. Perhaps we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves by jumping into perfect, what has perfect produced, timing. Yeah. What has produced a Russian nuclear industry where 
approximately every single deal to build nuclear in the world approximately is, is Russian. The, the majority, the majority of deals to build nuclear anywhere in the world are Russian. Almost all places that are getting a nuclear plant built by another country are getting it from Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost all groups of people who are studying in another land to learn uh, uh, nuclear engineering are, are foreigners studying in Russia. Uh, in um, inst- academic institutions as funded by their home country, as funded by their power companies, as funded by Russian government, as funded by Rosatom itself. And that's, that's fascinating. Uh, the it, world it, of nuclear imports and exports yeah. is in many ways a Russian world. And I mean, it's fascinating because that whole legacy of bringing in international students to study, I guess, in the former Soviet Union at that time was such a relic of the Cold War and of, I guess, soft power diplomacy. Um, but there were enormous numbers of technicians and engineers and doctors that were you know, brought in. I understand there was whole schools devoted to training people from certain language blocks even. Um, so that it, it sounds like that legacy, um, despite having changed dramatically, is, is sort of works in favor of, of their export industry. And I think that's one of the one of the many reasons I'm interested in t- talking about Russian nuclear is, again, as you were saying, their kind of domination of the export market. Well, and how did how did we get to that, that situation? Yeah. Part of it was through a, a, a loss of order and a loss of structure in the Russian nuclear industry with the with the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, where after really wandering in the wilderness for about 15 years in 2007, there was this great reassembling of mm-hmm. all the components that had been scattered of the Russian nuclear industry, the fuels, technical expertise, research institutes, manufacturing companies, metal companies, um, the the power generation itself, construction services, just about everything you could possibly imagine and then some was reassembled and put into one team. And, And I'm telling you, there were a lot of folks who tried to make a go of it in their own little silo after yeah. the Soviet Union broke apart. So, there so, was a, so, so exactly that. I mean, when when the Soviet Union collapsed, I think this is kind of a, a famous um, pattern that we saw, which was there's this kind of, you know, you I guess you went from this kind of centralized command control economy to a number of kind of oligarchs taking over sectors of the economy and, you know, creating a very, again, from my maybe ignorant outside perspective, like a very fractured um, system from what had been previously very well organized, centrally planned sectors of, of industries. And I think obviously that central planning was disastrous for a number of, uh, a number of sectors of the economy, but I imagine for, for nuclear. And again, my, my sense is that part of Russia's success right now is that they've, they've developed this cohesive, um, institution and Rose Adam that controls this whole supply chain. And that has, you know, I guess it's a state owned enterprise. It has that magic control of, of, uh, from the state and support from the state that allows the sort of, uh, I've kind of referred to it as like the nuclear juggernaut of a huge freight train to sort of get momentum, get, get moving, you know, move that, uh, low carbon energy payload forward in a way that only nuclear can, but in a way that it only can with some degree of state support. I mean, what, what do you think about my thesis there? Well, I think that uh, a lot of people would agree with you, but we have to be careful. State support comes with strings attached. It's absolutely clear um, to Rose Adam that it is a business and it is expected to make money. It is expected to make more money than it spends. Mm-hmm. It is expected, even, even if Rose Adam is urged, strongly urged, 
by folks in Russia to get a deal done with a given country for strategic reasons or for alliance reasons, Rose Adam is expected to do a good job, not get screwed over on the deal, to make sure they make money and make sure their product works. And they have to get that done. They have to get that done. I mean, look, if it were only state ownership that guaranteed or assured success, then then honestly, Roscosmos would be doing better than SpaceX. Right, right. And Roscosmos is, I mean, they 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 kept up flights to this to the International Space Station when the US didn't have any anything to compare with, but um, I don't think anyone would say today that Roscosmos is is definitely ahead of the U.S. on space, even though, you know, uh, Roscosmos had a, many of the same, you would think many of the same advantages mm-hmm. that you would have described in your thesis as as does uh, Rose Adam today. Right. So a little more complex than my uh, my uh, <laughs> my thesis. But, but yeah, let me talk about that. There is something sure. in the end. Rose Adams succeeded in attracting the types of individuals in Russia who could get the job done, who could learn all the languages they needed to learn, right. who, could, who could work across cultures and very complicated, um, very tricky construction jobs, right? Who could, who could uh, you wine and dine the right people to get deals sealed. You know, nuclear is hard. There's a reason why so many of the folks in our generation have turned away from nuclear. It's hard. Who the heck would, who, who would build a cathedral now when you can buy up an old Walmart to turn into a, a, a church? I mean, and I come from a place where no knocking that as a business model, but that's, a, that's one of the business models of spirituality where I come from in Oklahoma. It's right. so hard to find people who can cut stone. It's so hard to make super long-term commitments and get the foundation right and get the, get the shared vision across so many people. And then you add in that special tension that comes in nuclear that you can't get away from where people know, they know that nuclear is special, maybe the most special technology that humans have. They just don't know whether it's special good or special bad. And you realize that to manage all that and to build these nuclear cathedrals, Rosemis track quite frankly the best folks in, in Russia. And it's interesting to see how they appear to have done it, Chris. So for one, um, I, I gather there's this sense I gather that Rose Adam is one of the best ways a young Russian can be involved in truly international long-term business in a way that if you went to another company uh, outside of Russia or you started your own, you would be genuinely ready to do complicated uh, international business if you get a career in Rose Adam going. But it's not just that. There's a sense from the young folks in Rose Adam that, uh, at least the ones I've talked to, that if you can make it, if you can make the cut to get to Rose Adam and and you can do a good job, you don't leave. Because it's exciting, it's hard, and it, in the end, it matters. Right. And part of that, part of that, uh, it matters thing. I mean, I, I have a book on my, I have a book on my shelf that was very interesting to find back in college. Everything was forever until it was no more. The uh, last Soviet generation, and the, there are a number of different essays in the book, but the most interesting material for me to read as a young Russian student, was the sense of absolute 
bewildering disorientation and lost among this last Soviet generation that now makes up this elite core of managers uh, at the top of Rose Adam. Right. The sense that things that you may have been bored by or not care about, at least you thought they would last forever. The party, the state, the union, the right. creeds, the granite statues even, right? The marble statues mm-hmm. set in stone of the of the folks who were effectively the gods and deities of the of the Soviet Union. And almost overnight it seemed to all crumble. What came after that was a was a wild, frantic, exhilarating, uh, horrifying decade in many ways. And there's a sense that it's valuable to spend one's time building things that last. Yeah. And what we're seeing from nuclear plants, and we'll talk a little bit more about the longevity of nuclear plants, I'm sure, when we compare Russian technology to Western technology, nuclear plants last. Anything mm-hmm. a young Rose Adam employee gets built today will outlast them. Yeah. At this point, we're looking at 80 years easy. If you start a new, if, look, if you're a Russian who's starting a plant in um, Turkey or Bangladesh, as they have the last few years, you're working on something that will never die, at least not in your lifetime. Your grandkids yeah. could work there. Um, well, if you're Turkish, yeah. if they're, if they're we, 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 Russian tax anymore. We talk about that a lot. I mean, uh, when we had, uh, it was David Walters on from the UK and he was saying, you know, all the, all the current infrastructure that's being built in the UK, um, except for, I think, Hinkley, um, all of it will be offline by 2050 in terms of the, you know, the wind and solar and the gas turbines and things like that. So there is that, that sense of longevity. So, so Mark, we've been talking a bit about more of the kind of recent history, I guess, going back to the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think just for our listeners, let's let's give them a sense of the, the history at play here, right? We mentioned this is a sector that's been around for 75 years. Um, without going into too, too much detail, because we are a bit limited in our time, there's so much we can explore. Walk us a little bit through um, the history here. Again, to just give our listeners a sense of, of the scope of what we're talking about. Well, the Russian nuclear program uh, got off to a fast start uh, after World War II. Um, through, various, through various means, Russia got a nuclear weapon rapidly after the U.S. did. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things. Did they get it because they had spies and stole secrets? Yeah, but the best material I've read on it indicated that the key thing was knowing that nuclear explosions were possible, that nuclear weapons were possible. Russia absolutely had the mathematical and physical and industrial talent to fill in all the pieces beyond simply knowing that it was possible. And the paranoia of the Stalin years meant that it was more important for the, the, you know, the heads of the secret police to use spies and use stolen information to confirm that their own scientists and physicists were doing a good job rather than to use it as the basis of their own work. Mm -hmm. Um, Russia, uh, Claims to have the first uh, civil nuclear plant for grid electricity in the world with the opening of Obninsk in 1954. Uh, that's, a, that's a claim that goes back and forth between a few different countries, depending on what you, what you consider you know, for grid electricity or uh, is it a plant only for electricity and not for you know, dual use, shall we say. But anyway, let's just say the first nuclear plant that was pumping out grid electricity came in Russia in 1954. Then over the course of the next 10 years, there's a rapid attempt to catch up to the many nuclear reactor development programs going on in the West. 
So for example, um, the, the seeds during that time of what became two very different uh, nuclear engineering worlds came out. The, the, what became the Chernobyl type reactor, the RBMK came out of that era. And also the, um, the Russian answer to what became the lead American technology, the pressurized water reactor came out around that period after Americans again proved that it was possible to do a good job with water cooled, water moderated, no boiling and core reactors that we call in the West PWR and um, what they call in Russia the VVER, VVER, um, or for water, water energy reactor. Right, right. And um, so you know, obviously you've mentioned that these, the RBMK and the VVR went sort of in two different directions. Um, that seems to be sort of a, a common story with countries exploring their options. I mean, the, the, in the UK, they really went with this, uh, graphite moderated gas reactor technology. There was tension in, in, uh, in France, I think between a gas reactor and a, and a pressurized system. Um, I mean, I think we all know to some degree what, you know, what the RBMK got a bad reputation at some point. Um, and, and things have steered towards the VVER. I don't know. Is there, is there more you want to explore there in terms of? Yeah, of I want to talk about the RBMK a little bit. Because, I mean, you know, we were talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union and Gorbachev famously said that, you know, Chernobyl was the straw that broke the camel's back there. I mean, I'm not sure whether to take that at face value. But I mean, this this technology has had big implications for potentially the Soviet Union, for the world, for nuclear in general. So, yeah, let's I think it deserves us diving in a little bit. I mean, certainly, certainly I, I have more empathy for Gorbachev talking about Chernobyl than I do about uh, uh, Japan's uh, Khan talking about uh, Fukushima, where he goes around and he's a leading anti-nuclear speaker. And he, he, you know, quite dishonestly says, I, we almost had to evacuate Tokyo, which was just, it's one of those, it's one of those real bad uh, lies at worst, misinterpretations of scientific truth at best, um, that sort of back justifies it being as important as we made it out to be, either mm -hmm. uh, Fukushima in that case, or, or um, I guess in Chernobyl, the, the panic about what it could have meant is best exemplified by the incredible dishonesty in the Chernobyl HBO TV show, where there's a pivotal scene that is truly setting the stakes beyond, you know, shooting puppies and, and individuals dying of radiation burns, the scene that sets the maximum possible stakes for this event mm -hmm. is, is implying that if the cleanup hadn't gone just right, or somebody hadn't done the right thing after the explosion, all of Europe could be lost or some, right, some right. absolute uh, irresponsible lie like that. Well, here's what, here's what we know about Chernobyl as the worst nuclear accident ever. We haven't found the cancers we were supposed to. So there's one. Two, the, the nuclear plant stayed in operation, daily operation. I mean, the year of the, the, year of the blast, I, it wasn't a great year to be fair, of, you know, the worst accident ever happened in it. But the other three reactors kept operating and they kept mm. operating for years. In fact, by the time the last two reactors at Chernobyl um, were forced to close in the late 90s and, and uh, turn of the millennium, they had to be paid a cash bounty. I mean, Ukraine, Ukraine had to be paid a couple hundred million bucks from Europe to sabotage their Those own are... power plant and turn it off. 
And I wow. can tell you that that was an absolute death blow for the communities around it. That was a death blow for the economy of the region. It was just devastating to lose a perfectly good nuclear plant. And if less people get angry that we say that Chernobyl, which had a reactor blow up, was perfectly good, perfectly good. Well, it's never easier to learn than in hindsight. And the RBMKs have had an absolutely brilliant safety record all over Eastern Europe since that event. And so in fact, the, the RBMKs are still in operation. They're still in operation to this day. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the large ones, but of which there's, uh, you know, what month this is, April. I think there's about 10 still left in, in Eastern Europe, Russian Eastern Europe, still producing more than, uh, than like German solar does. That feels good. But anyway, there's a town in Siberia that has been powered by about 40 years, 40, more than 40 years, by three miniature little RBMKs that sit in a row and they provide heat and electricity. It's the small modular nuclear everyone right. thinks we might get to someday. And it already exists. I know that some SMR people say, oh, you don't have to dream. You can look at boats. You can look at icebreakers. You can look at Navy. You don't have to even look at that. You right. can look at these mini RBMKs still in service to this day out in Siberia. So, so what happened? That's an incredible story. What happened? Because obviously, I mean, the, we're not going to go and, and dissect the accident itself and all the technical aspects, but, you know, there were elements and I understand a big part of the Chernobyl accident was, um, you know, both poor training, both, uh, you know, poor synthesis of lessons learned across the fleet. Um, and then a really irresponsible test, you know, that happened on a night shift. Um, and I think we see that um, not so much in terms of accidents, but in terms of, um, you know, improvements in capacity factors. Like I think one of the, one of the arguments um, with folks that think that an advanced design is going to solve all of nuclear's problems is that, you know, when we operate a reactor system for, you know, many decades, we learn so many things about how to run it better, how to troubleshoot different elements. Cause there's always going to be engineering issues that will come up with any new technology, but what did they do to, I guess, like safety, the remaining RBMK fleet, I, I would gather there was a lot of pressure from Europe, not only to shut them down, but to, to, to make them more safe? Did they, did they uh, put containment around the cores? Like what was the, what was the solution there, the workaround? Nope. They did not put containment around the cores. They improved every single one of the things you mentioned. They, oh, they changed up the training. They changed up the way safety was taken as a, as a general practice. They made some physical modifications to the plant. Um, they made changes to operating procedures at the plant. Um, it's just like how every, every nuclear plant in the world now is designed with Fukushima in mind. Right. Um, whether or not that plant is located on an ocean side or, right. or in an earthquake ridge, it doesn't matter. The, every plant in the world is, is built with Fukushima in mind. I mean, I don't know if people know this about the airline industry, but um, from 1996 or 1997 onwards, there was this massive industry-wide effort to get to zero accidents by American carriers and, or zero deaths, and they did it. They accomplished it. Right. Um, they, they, almost, they almost completely eliminated entire classes of errors while knowing that they only got to keep that safety, not by saying we've eliminated the error as a past thing, but by developing human processes going forward yeah. that lead to constant vigilance in a way. And yeah, I it's... would imagine, although I don't know every one of the details, I would mm -hmm. imagine that the program that went into making the excellent 
operation of the RBMK fleet that we see in Europe today is, is uh, from exact, is something very similar to what happened in American airlines. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's why we have black boxes. We investigate in excruciating detail every circumstance around a crash. We expect, you know, that planes are still going to crash. You know, as, as passengers, we get on planes realizing that every year there is an accident here or there around the world. Obviously, there was the big controversy with Boeing and, and there were some real technical issues found there. But, I, you know, in, in medicine, we actually study the airline in, industry quite a bit when we, when we do our medical simulation training. Um, precisely for those reasons of those kind of standard operating procedures, there's been issues. And, and this used to be a big thing, I think, within the airline industry with those big jumbo jets where there was a cockpit with a navigator and a pilot and a co-pilot. And, and uh, junior members of the team might say, hey, captain, this is not a good idea. The Tenerife accident, for instance. Um, we have not been cleared, right? And that the pilot two, wasn't two jets, yeah. two jumbo jets. I think 747s. That yeah, just because the the captain was uh, bullheaded and you know had been weathered in and wanted to get out of the Canary Islands or Tenerife. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the standard operating procedure is super important. But let's let's move on. Um, we talked about the RBMK VVERs. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Icebreakers. The, uh, the fast reactor series. I don't know how, how deep to dive into this, but I feel like we got to do it justice, right? I mean, I think one of the things that fascinates me about the Russian industry is that it seems to be in a good state of health and therefore capable of doing things like, hey, let's try this whole fast reactor side project. And it seems to be having a certain degree of success or let's, you know, let's work on this SMR thing to a degree or, or build icebreakers. Like there's a huge amount of um, vitality and variability in a way that you just don't see in any other country, I feel around the world. Yet, yet, all of it underpinned by excellence Mm. and quantity of selling the same traditional reactor with little bitty step-by-step upgrades that they've been selling and building for for five decades now. Right. So that's, I think that's very important. Um, When I talk to advanced reactor folks, um, there's almost never even much of an interest about the actually existing Russian programs. And I understand we're all busy, um, but this problem is perhaps, it's one thing if it's the technical folks or the specifically the people in the industrial companies that are trying to build new American advanced reactors. But when I hear it in policy people and spokespeople, it's just embarrassing. Let's clear up some things. Uh, the, by far the most successful sodium fast reactor program in world history is the Russian program. Um, there are still two operating and, and six successful enough commercial reactors in Russia, uh, the BN 600 and BN 800. These are 600 and 800 megawatt respective, uh, respectively sodium fast reactors. So that's a liquid metal coolant. Um, neutrons blasting very fast through the core, not slowed down much, and a lot more reaction types are probable and, and occurring in a fast reactor core. What this means is depending on how you set up your reactor, you can either, you could say, have it consume waste, you can have it consume different types of fuel, you can um, make more fuel than you put into the reactor, it's called breeding. It's a fascinating program. And one of the major findings in Russia is that they are doing a sodium fast reactor, not because of costs, not because they're easier to build, not because they're, they're, they are thinking that this is going to like take over and replace the increasingly long-lived Viver reactors. Mm-hmm. No, they just think it's an important spiritual goal to close the fuel cycle. 
it matters. They want to close the fuel cycle. What this means uh, is basically that you can make a reactor that will take very little new uranium from the earth and put very, very little uranium or other heavy, very heavy atom waste back in the earth. If that's what mm -hmm. we decide to do with spent fuel. Right. And it's a beautiful vision, but it's not really done because they're trying to make cheaper electricity. I think right. that's quite important. And they're, they're more successful at sodium fast reactors than we've ever been. I love sodium fast reactors. I've hinted on first episode that I did that, that uh, I'd love to just talk about sodium fa fast reactors and their potential someday. I think that there are very real, intriguing potential advancements being made in the US by the program being undertaken by General Electric and TerraPower. I think that the American program was in disarray to build the sodium fast reactor program in America was in absolute disarray at a point that Russia's was starting to take off a little bit better and that a lot of really important thinking happened that led to design upgrades that may lead to future gains in right. American sodium fast reactor technology. But Russia has the best working example today and they continue to innovate on uh, fuel and fuel cycle technology choices with that reactor. It's, it's interesting as well, because I feel like so much of advanced nuclear in, in Canada and the US is, I mean, the, the regulatory environment is such that you can't actually build it and troubleshoot it. Um, it seems like everything has to be sort of computer simulated. So it seems like part of the Russian motive might be like, well, let's actually build this troubleshoot it, figure it out in the real world, because the computer systems are only, you know, only good enough to a point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I was kind of frustratingly reading uh, Bill Gates' uh, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster book. And I mean, he just, I think similarly to many, just completely ignores the existing nuclear fleet that's out there, um, even sort of casts um, doubt on, on their ability to operate safely or, or continue being a backbone decarbonization tool. You know, in the context of saying we've got to get to zero by whatever, 20, 30 years, it's, it's um, a little frustrating. So let's, let's just jump back then to the VVR because I, I want to sort of um, move into some of the geopolitics. Wait, no, I won't let you. I'm going to drag you down like a lead weight by talking about the lead fast reactor program that's growing ahead. In, in Russia. So lead is a really, really heavy metal. It is, it is a supremely heavy metal. It is hard to pump liquid yeah. lead. It's yeah. just uh, um, really difficult. However, um, despite some misadventures with lead-cooled fast reactor submarines right. uh, in the Soviet Union, the I guess there's enough desire, there's enough desire for new frontiers in growth atom that they are pushing ahead. They've already started constructing a uh, reactor called the BREST, the Brest 300 uh, lead cool fast reactor. And uh, I am fascinated to see what they are gonna make from it. I do not know if they expect it to ever make money or at least not initially. I mean, so here's the thing about nuclear, almost any uh, brutal crushing amount of money that you spend to make it will eventually get paid off. I mean, even more, even more obviously than tourist revenue to a cathedral town 800 years later, nuclear plants within a few decades of their construction are, are just clean energy making machines. They are extraordinary and you're done paying for capital costs, whatever they were, and you're left with treasure. You're left with a, an endowment for your economic future, both locally and nationally for those countries that make the jump to nuclear. But 
I don't think they're making the, the, the rest 300 because they think that that's absolutely the cheapest way to make electricity in that area, area out in Siberia. Um, I think they're doing it because they are fascinated by new challenges. They want to explore and see what it can make. And quite frankly, there's probably really respected, uh, bold senior scientists and bureaucrats that have been hankering after this program for a long time. And that by God, they found a way to get the funding to make it go. Right. But that okay. funding, that, 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 uh, that trust, that vision comes out of the success of this recombined Ross atom of 2007, making reactors that work and making them not just for Russia, but all around the world. I you think, know, I, was, I think I'm ready to go back to Viva. Though. We'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that in a second. I mean, when I was just tying this into some other episodes, when I was preparing for my uh, my China episode with Francois Morin, um, I read a fascinating book called The Politics of Nuclear Energy in China. And it was it was, you know, China's sort of done this um, smorgasbord approach of, of a lot of different turnkey projects from a variety of, I guess I should say the buffet lunch, perhaps, um, you know, a lot of different turnkey projects from a lot of different countries. And I think uh, there was a reason they were diplomatically isolated after Tiananmen Square. And so, you know, the Russians um, offered a VVR um, at, you know, right at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, that was a time, again, when there was a lot of skepticism about their ability to carry through these big projects internationally. And, and I think things have changed um, whereby now they're dominating the export market and, and they're doing it, you know, to tie back into the VVR. They're doing it with with that reactor. I understand that's sort of the, the backbone. couple questions. So in terms of... Um, in terms of like the, the motivation um, to build VVR in in Russia, I've heard I've heard that it's uh, a large part to sort of steward the natural gas resources so they can sell that to Europe and not not waste that themselves. Also to sort of be a proving ground for hey, like we're building this in your country, we we're building it in our country too, and it works well. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about the kind of broader implications of the VVR for. Um, you know, global export, um, and I think we'll get into more details about looking at, at, at nuclear technology export and, and how that's beneficial. Cause a lot of, I think a lot of people think about like, well, this is a tool you may be using to dominate other countries. Um, but from what I understand, there's, there's a huge amount of transfer of technology and of kind of enrichment of those countries. I'm using that word maybe incorrectly, but, you know, in terms of developing the educational capacity, the, the, the expertise, the local supply chain to, to support that, that, you know, quantum leap in technology that, that nuclear brings. Big question there. Unpack that as you will, Mark. Sure. As I mentioned, there are a lot of institutes in, in Russia to teach foreign students and professionals how to do nuclear. Um, and these institutes, they teach the VVR. They don't teach uh, Westinghouse PWRs. They don't teach General Electric BWRs. They don't teach Ramatone EPRs. They teach VVRs. Having said that, I think that's some necessary that's some necessary protectionism for the investments putting in. And in the end, the reason why Russia's building nuclear is the same reason everyone else is. Nuclear is the safest, longest lived, most reliable way to make energy. It's best in the cold. And assuming you have, you, you know, at least a bit of preparation, um, it's, the, it's the best in the heat. It, uh, you know, it, in the Texas blackouts, nuclear was by far the best. And if those blackouts happened again today, we still don't have much assurance that, the, that every other type of energy would still have problems. But already, already the fix has almost certainly been made to prevent even a megawatt of nuclear capacity from going off if the Texas event happened again today. 
because mm -hmm. it wasn't something inherent to the system. It wasn't even inherent to the power plant that, that had an issue. So Russia makes nuclear because it's the best energy source. And that's why people are going to Russia to buy it because they want the best energy source. And if Russia comes to your country and builds your reactor, no matter what it says on the document, no matter what the contracts stipulate, that's yours. And if Russia cut off all help, if Russia cut off any bit of, of, of support, you would be able to find consultants, contractors, companies, suppliers, fuel vendors to keep your plants. And it would still, it would be a headache, be a real pain in the ass, but it'd be a much smaller issue than Germany's gonna have trying to fuel their entire economy based on based on a, a few natural gas pipelines. And that that's a proven point in the context of Ukraine, right? Where due to those geopolitical tensions, Ukraine's now fueling with Westinghouse fuel or something, right? Well, they're 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 hedging with Westinghouse fuel. They they work with a number of fuel suppliers, a number of uranium suppliers um, until recently. Maybe they still have it. They had some of their own uranium, but uh, nuclear is the ultimate option. They are going to keep their supplier option open in Ukraine, even though it is best for their reactors, probably in terms of reliability and cost to keep using the suppliers they've already used in Russia, which tells us that there's something very peculiar about nuclear. Certainly a Ukraine based entirely on natural gas would that, that would be that would be a situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of the tension around Germany is the fact that natural gas pipelines are going directly to Germany, bypassing almost in, uh, the entirety of Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. which then potentially becomes much less strategically important for Germany to care about. Right. Right. So Ukraine has Soviet reactors fueled by Russian companies, and it is the site of the worst nuclear disaster ever a right. reactor built by the Soviet Union, operated by the Soviet Union, destroyed by the Soviet Union. And it is probably one of the most pro-nuclear country I've visited and, and uh, talked to. And just again, why is that? Because I think a lot of listeners would find that to be pretty astounding. Because nuclear on your territory is yours and it's the most secure energy you can get. And there's nothing that compares ever. And again, that's that's because you have two years of fuel on site. That's because... And if you want 10, you can have 10 years of fuel on site. Right. It's because the weather doesn't matter. It's because in an earthquake, you go to a nuclear plant for safety, not away. It's because mm -hmm. there's only it's the only building, uh, one of the only civilian buildings in any country built to withstand almost anything. Right. There's a reason why the disaster that triggered the, the meltdowns of Fukushima Daiichi killed tens of thousands of people outside the plant. Right. And not a single person got a radiation burn. That doesn't excuse not raising the seawall. That doesn't excuse political interference in the safety management of the plant. That doesn't excuse not having, uh, you know, generators that don't flood. None of that is to excuse it. It's just that the plants weren't ready and it's still the lethality didn't come from the nuclear plant. Right. Yeah, it no, came from our cultural reaction. It came from our fear. It came from um, messing with safety procedures. It came from many things, but it didn't come from radiation. Yeah. Not in no, the sense that you deal with, say, problems from somebody coming in with a wound. That's not, we can talk all day about how they ended up with the wound, but if the wound isn't the thing killing them, then you, you move on to the next patient.
in a triage situation. Yeah. Yeah. And nuclear, nuclear provides that assurance that the heartbeat keeps going, the heartbeat of the country, Britain. Mm -hmm. Especially island nations or, or areas with um, you know insecure supplies, and I think that's we've seen a lot of. How about success. this low-lying nation like uh, Bangladesh or right. Pakistan getting nuclear from China when it has huge earthquakes? The earthquakes in Pakistan are a reason to get nuclear, not to avoid it. It's the right. opposite of what people say, honestly, mm-hmm. and that's why. And, and Russia is building nuclear because it's good at it. It's seeing excellent economic performance of the nuclear plant. Doesn't mean that the grid companies are going to fully pay everything that Rose Adam would like to make on their plants. That's some things are out of your hands. It means that Russian electricity gets to be more secure and lower priced because of nuclear. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, practically no world leaders of any stature make any decisions based on climate change. I just can't see any evidence of this. Look, you get you get people screaming about climate change into office in Europe. The first thing they want to do is get addicted to natural gas. It's like a compulsion. They just have to get they just have to have their gas. And you say, well, well, the climate change and the methane and it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Climate change, no, no matter what we see in headlines, it is never, ever as urgent as the grid staying on and never will be. No. Yeah, climate change activists don't act like that's true. Anybody who does is treated even by other people who care about the issue as an extremist. What do you mean you've cut off all travel except for a you know, bike around your house? What do you mean you've cut out almost every food source? What do you mean you don't turn on your lights? Anymore? I mean, almost nobody does that. Yeah. Those who do are weird. And then to the extent that higher costs from dealing with climate change come without rewards, as unfortunately it does in many of the energy system changes made by people who reject nuclear, you have a lot of pain. So Russia can look at a place like California and say, yeah, I think we'll just keep building nuclear plants. Yeah. I want to talk about, you you mentioned Bangladesh. Um, You mentioned, I think I I was looking very briefly at this. I think in 2015, there was um, some major agreements signed with African nations. Um, I mean, these are countries that people maybe ignorantly wouldn't assume have the capacity to to go nuclear. Um, Can you tell us, maybe give us an example? I'm I'm not sure. Is there anything active in Africa right now in terms of a build or a plan? Or maybe we'll pivot to Bangladesh and and talk about that. I mean, I'm not trying to slag Bangladesh whatsoever. It's, it's, you know, very much a medium income country. They're, They're developing quite rapidly. Um, but I'm just trying to get a sense. I know, again, I have such a myopia, and I think many people in the West do, about um, you know, what's happening around the world, the status of nuclear, the status of each country's capacity. But if you can tell that story, again, just, just to illustrate that, um, that large export market that, that Russia is, is dominating. Sure. So uh, at the moment, Russia is building just one nuclear plant, nuclear plant, big plant in Africa, and that's in Egypt. Okay. Um, if you want, if you want uh, cathedrals, there's a, Egypt's a country that knows about large state projects, right? From all the way back. And they're getting, they're getting a set of four reactors on the Mediterranean oh. Sea. Um, so like Baraka and the UAE, is that? Is yeah, similar? yeah, yeah, exactly. One, two, three, four, right there on the sand in the ocean. You can, you know, probably get off shift and go scuba diving. I bet it's, uh, you know, I bet it's a, a beautiful place that, uh, to visit once they uh, get a little further on. It's uh, on the Mediterranean, just west of Alexandria. 
Okay. Anyway, but Russia is actively, you could say courting. There's a lot of words we just lapse into using when we talk about Russia. We say they're dominating exports, not that they're the pretty much the only one offering, the only one seeking customers from the top of the state down saying, hey, we've got this cool product. Right. Let us sell it to you. We love it. We love you guys. Let's work together. Let's do a deal, right? In in America, it's not like American presidents are going to go and say, hey, look, you're a customer country and we're customer focused. We're going to get you a good nuclear plant. We don't do that. We're like, we are the best in the world. If they recognize our excellence in spirit, not in actually finishing projects or whatever, they'll come to us and they'll just know that American quality is worth signing a really intense and sometimes humiliating trade agreement to get because they're just amazing. So that's right. the attitude that you get in the U.S. In, in Russia, they say, we want to do business with you guys. We want to make you great. We want to make you rich. We want to make you uh, powerful and independent. Let's get you started in nuclear. Where that's going in sub-Saharan Africa is that it's uh, research institutions. It's bringing over students, conversations with energy ministers. It's uh, a lot of human development that in the end has this one key important thing that our energy outreach to those societies is missing. Respect. The respect of saying you deserve nuclear just like the advanced countries of the world deserve nuclear. How did Europe get rich, Chris? Well, first they cut down every single tree in Europe. They cut it all down. They chopped it down, hoed it up, slashed and burned. They made an agricultural system that through ups and downs of weathers and little ice ages, at least provided some sort of economic basis, some sort of economic order. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was enough to feed a certain, you know, population of people. Then, then it got it got fossil fuels and it pushed those things as hard as it could go. Filthy, dark towns covered in coal soot. That's how Europe got rich. Heck, until, until recent uh, deforestation campaigns to install very broad energy systems across the landscape like biomass or solar or wind or, or heck, just you know, chopping down trees to feed those biomass furnaces like Europe was reforesting quite handily. Mm-hmm. And then it was going out and lecturing the world. Don't chop down your forest. You should be rich, but don't do that. Or actually maybe don't even be rich. That was the attitude that the world was getting. Now, I mean, Germany is willing to get you wind turbines as long as you do not want to make them yourself. As long as you don't want the IP, as long as you don't want the jobs, and as long as you don't want the, the actual development that allows Germany to make giant wind turbines and sell them to you. As long as you want no respect, self-determination, no dignity, Europe and America is willing to sell you the types of energies that they themselves would never dare to switch their economy to. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got a bunch of the world treating Africa like suckers, like dumb suckers, doing things that they would never, you would never, they would never ask, look, in Germany, they keep up a giant fossil fuel fleet that has not shrunk in the least in 20 years. Yeah. That's yeah, not that... faith in their own wind turbines. That's faith in their own wind turbine sales teams, remote techs, and factories. There's yeah. a difference. When that, that... Russia goes to Africa, they're selling you a chance to be rich too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why folks are interested. 
Yeah, it that, doesn't that... mean they can necessarily afford the, the plants today. Right. It doesn't mean there's enough necessarily enough state capacity to do a deal with the with the level of scrutiny and oversight that that is required in nuclear, Russian or not. Um, look at South Africa. South Africa was moving forward on a giant nuclear deal, perhaps too big with Russia, and it fell apart with a change in administration. It, it, um, folks involved in, in that administration were, were, you know, accused of corruption and really powerful folks came out to attack the nuclear program as signed with Russia and it just, it fell apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not smooth going, but I think what we'll see is the emerging wealthy nations of Africa, the ones that catch that, catch that bit in their teeth and they just want to go, they just want to pull, pull, pull towards wealth, authentic wealth. They're going to be going towards nuclear reactors and Russia's in by far the best position to sell them. Right. So, I mean, that, that brings us, I think a lot of people in the U.S., um, you know, look back to Adams for Peace and look to a time when I think the U.S. was really, I mean, we said the word dominate, but, um, you know, leading the nuclear export industry. I mean, their designs are, became the basis for, um, you know, the, the French designs and the Korean designs. Um, and it seems like things are pivoting or shifting. Um, I mean, this isn't an Adams for Peace framework anymore, um, but it's just a kind of interesting thing. And I thought dropping Adams for Peace, I'm sure you have tons of opinions on it. That might be an interesting framework or way to sort of look at the, the similarities and differences to the ways in which, um, you know, Russia has risen to being the, the key supplier internationally now. Well, in a, in a world that, that started Adams for Peace, Every single person in pretty much any high-level position of power anywhere in the world uh, have, have likely been a part of or know, they've been a part of the bloodiest conflict in world history that ended with the creation of a weapon that seemed capable of killing everyone. Followed by an immediate end to the dream for full international peace and cooperation followed by a rapid expansion and improvement in technologies that meant that everybody could get to everywhere in, in hours, right? Mm. So you had a world changing so damn rapidly, it was almost impossible to keep track of, of what even was the capability of a nation state from day to day, right? So in that world, it was thought that we could die any moment, that any tiny misunderstanding could lead to everyone dying at any moment, that a ground conflict or war was probably inevitable between two global systems, and that nuclear energy was going to expand in one way or another, so it might as well expand with an eye towards peaceful uses and uh, international security rather than international anarchy and chaos and accidents and pain and death. And so Adams for Peace was an emotional response by Eisenhower to this incredibly dark moment when his own country's nuclear weapons test made it clear that everyone could now die and that there would never truly be protection ever again anywhere for any nation from uh, weapons of war. Mm -hmm. 
ended the idea that we were anything but, as, as he put it, scorpions in a bell jar with our stingers aimed at each other where uh, both would die if, if the stinging started. Right. So what does that all mean for us today? Are we in that same situation with regards to climate change? Certainly the people who have that idea that climate change will kill us all almost never like nuclear. So I think there's a problem getting an atoms for peace metaphor or, you know, comparison that works quite right with saying, you know, uh, nuclear for climate because we'll all die alone at, in weather events if we don't pull together and build nuclear. However, I think that national wealth, national self-determination is strong enough. I think that the vision of standing on one's own two feet and deciding where you go as a society and having at least what rich countries do is a vision so powerful that it is enough to drive these bilateral relations between Russia and African countries. I think that, uh, yeah, of course, I would love for the U.S. to capture some of that spirit, but um, a lot of the things that seem to come along with Adams for Peace, like really intense distrust of a nation receiving nuclear programs. Right. I mean, maybe they didn't come out straight away, but eventually that's what after about 20 years, 30 years happened, where America in many ways stopped being a good partner on nuclear because of uh, an overwhelming paranoia that everything we did was going to lead to a world in which our power was contained or diminished or our safety was diminished. Right. To the extent that there's a new spirit in Washington that we need to be involved in these nuclear uh, deals, that we need to be involved in nuclear technology transfer around the world, um, it comes from, I hate to say it, nothing more than the recognition that it's going to happen anyway, that Russia did not fail at building successful commercial nuclear plants, rather it succeeded, perhaps beyond what we thought was going to be possible. I want, I want to like challenge you on something, Mark, um, because, you, you know, you're talking about nuclear as this, this tool to, to build wealth within developing countries. And I mean, I think that's, that's true to a degree, but I mean, the dominant way to do that in terms of enrich your energy supply is certainly to build coal plants. There seem to be a lot cheaper, a lot faster, a lot more accessible. Um, so, you know, why, you know, it's, it, it seems like nuclear is kind of the exception to that rule where there's certain countries like Egypt or UAE um, that potentially have a bit more capacity that are choosing nuclear, um, or, you know, and there's definitely a broad number of reasons. I'm sure Egypt doesn't have, you know, huge coal reserves. Um, but, you know, like you look at Vietnam, for instance, right? I mean, a huge coal boomer, Indonesia. Um, why, why nuclear instead of coal? Is that a pitch that needs to be made? Is it only possible, you know, as, you know, the Russians get better and better and can bring prices down and make it cost competitive? I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of the, hype around building new designs and, you know, getting cheaper than coal, for instance, or, you know, in, improving the regulatory environment. So that's possible that that comes up a lot. So, you know, answer that, that challenge, I guess. So modern coal plants are really complicated and they're really expensive. Um, you know, I would guess that I would trust an American company that exactly matches the team and the design of Vogel, AP-1000s in Georgia. I would trust them as much as I would trust us to build from scratch an absolute cutting edge match of like the newest generation of Chinese coal plants. Cause we just can't, you know, it's complicated. It's the same, we can't, we can't, you know we can barely build subways anymore. 
right? So no. it's there's a there's a misunderstanding I think that you've repeated is that coal is is uh, you know so more so much cheaper than nuclear that we've got to do some crazy thing to make it cheaper uh, to make nuclear cheaper than coal. Coal is is first of all putting aside the fact that it's hard to find financing for coal plants anymore. Just putting that aside. Coal is only cheaper for nuclear for a country without coal in the short run. Yeah, It's easier administratively. It's easier legally. Um, it's a lot less pressure. Bureaucrats are going to sleep better at night. Like there's a, there's a lot of things that are easier about coal, but I think it's not correct to say that a brand new, modern, efficient coal plant um, with coal being shipped in from other countries yeah. is, is a clear winner compared to nuclear. And that, that was certainly Mark Kawango's point um, when we were talking about nuclear in the Philippines. I mean, and maybe oh, that's yeah, the nuclear, extreme environment, look, but, you know, the shipping costs. competent were... nuclear project in the, in the Philippines is going to undercut the cost of Philippine coal. Yeah. I, I guess the question is the, the ability to, um, the, the capacity to scale up quickly or to be able to build, uh, you know, we talked about China a few episodes back and their plans for, you know, how many reactors are going to be coming online and the fact that, I think by 2030, they're going to have, you know, the second largest fleet in the world, uh, you know, by 2040, maybe more reactors in the rest of the world combined. What's what's the um, momentum looking like for um, this this Russian export industry? Are, are we going to see many, many more plants coming? Is it going to grow? I mean, very few things grow exponentially in this world, but will it follow a Fibonacci sequence? Will it will it increase to a large degree? What are your expectations for where? Um, you know, where Rosatoma is going and, and where this industry is going and, and whether, you know, I, I guess just the degree to which it's going to grow going forward. Well, remember that when Rosatom does a deal, it's not, it's not going to get World Bank funding coming in to help, or at least not yet. I'm excited um, that the Russians have started actually calling nuclear plant financing was it what it is, green Mm -hmm. green financing because it, it is it's uh, certainly better for the environment than any other energy technology that you could that you can compare it to yeah, they're, bo but, they're uh, bold in their communications i mean that's that's something that's really interesting is watching a few they're of their only bold compared to what we've come to expect from the nuclear yeah. industry in the west yeah our standards are exceptionally low <laughs> yeah fair anyway putting i i mean i i think they do a great job at their videos and stuff I, but partly you just fly a drone over a successful mega project and you're nearly done, right? Right. There's almost no communications in the world that can make an abandoned Western reactor program look good. Right. 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 And look, I, re I routinely run into people at the top of the nuclear industry in the West who like on one hand, they like logically know their plants are going to last a long time, but they never quite remember it in the moment. They never right. quite say it. They never quite get their marketers to talk about it. They, they're, just, uh, they're just really deeply confused. Right. Certainly, I've run into companies in the West who say, well, you know, we don't want to talk about our nuclear too much because we've got fossil fuels. Well, uh, Rose Adam doesn't got, <laughs> they don't have that problem. I mean, right. they just come straight out and they say, we make these really great things and they work well and we're very proud of them. They right. even paint them pretty. In the West, <laughs> I mean... I don't know whether there's been an impoverishment of the of the humanistic training of our engineers or architects, engineer firms, but there's just very little emphasis on making things look good. Yeah. And that is such a savage own goal in, in Western nuclear that 
Yeah, drives me nuts. But anyway, okay, so, putting that so, aside, putting that it, aside, yeah. you asked me a question, which is what Russian capabilities are going to be able to do in our dream of an expansion of world nuclear. In the end, Russia's only got so many people and it's only got so much capital. And although they are clearly getting better at better at deal flow and landing deals and getting reactors started and constructed, there are bottlenecks. For mm. one, Russia is very conservative with how it treats um, reactor designs. It makes a little bit of change at a time and it refuses to build anything. It refuses to even really sell a reactor outside of its own country that it hasn't built and commissioned inside its own. An attitude that's uh, um, even the Chinese haven't fully copied. I mean, Pakistan was building a, a Hualong one before first right. Hualong one was uh, on in China. And I think we'd be, we are excited to see the spread of nuclear, especially in the countries that need it most and have, have the, have the need for such secure energy supplies. But it means that this conservatism must slow down the spread of nuclear. While Russia is still engaged in, in, in difficult relations with other states, uh, it's going to be hard to disentangle that from nuclear. Now, there, there's something interesting here. There's almost an order of operations where if a nuclear program is already undergoing, it seems like it serves as a huge incentive to keep other things straight and on the level. Turkey and Russia got to some very tense moments um, around peripheral proxy battle issues in, in Syria, and they worked it out. They worked it out, and the Okuya nuclear plant, which is going to have one, two, three, four, another Baraka, basically, right. right there on the southern coast of Turkey. I mean, that's got, that is continuing. Mm -hmm. They worked out their issues maybe just for the survival of that critical energy project. Yeah. Right. Mark, I, I've got to uh, head to a, a shift in uh, COVID infested emergency department very soon, but I wanted to just close, I guess, you know, I, I guess is the U S capable of doing anything like this? I want to kind of circle back to that initial question I had about the nature of this kind of vertically oriented to some degree state supported company. Like it is that the recipe for nuclear in terms of, I mean, domestically even, but also internationally, I just, you know, I was talking with a friend recently about um, Ontario's nuclear program where we have these, you know, multi-site, uh, sorry, multi-reactor sites, you know, eight reactors at, at two of our sites. This is a very efficient way to build a, you know, a big economy of scale. You know, if, if you have the, the mechanisms, the funding mechanisms behind you, this is what makes most sense. I think even sort of skeptics um, like Ted Nordhaus will say, yeah, I mean, if you really want to decarbonize as quickly as possible, do what the French did, right? Or, you know, have a you know, a state planned or funded or supported um, build out of a, of a, a standardized design, you know, build a whole bunch of reactors at one site. That's how you're going to get there the fastest. Um, does the U.S. have, like we talk a lot, I think, in the context of COVID now about state capacity, right? And we see countries that have managed the COVID epidemic fairly well. And I think a commonality there is that they have a functioning public health system and and an ability, the state has an ability to intelligently contact trace and isolate. And, and, you know, there's certain countries that have had great success. Is, is the U S capable of this in the future? Is there a need to sort of copy what the Russians are doing to some degree? Is this all a great big fantasy? Is it too late now for the U S to, to revive itself in that sense? Is it doomed by its, its kind of economic models? 
Big question again. I like it is a fantasy. It is a fantasy and it is absolutely something we can do. Every great work is a stupid fantasy before it isn't before it's Mm -hmm. done. Look, challenge is important. Just like, just like uh, Soviet Union launched Amanda space. And then we did. And just like the Soviet Union saw our pressurized water reactors and they made a slightly better version of it. You know, we didn't mention this, but Soviet and Russian designed and built Vivers don't require the expensive and costly midlife upgrades that have been used as an excuse to kill plants across America, the mm. steam generators and reactor vessel heads. That's not necessary because they fixed, they fixed some of the design elements that we, that we got wrong, right? So we could do the same thing. We can look and see what's been difficult for Russia, what's been hard for Russia in getting this program of theirs up and running, and we can correct based on their challenge and their model. This is what every society that is capable of doing, if you just have a little bit of humility, just sit back and say, we're not the best anymore, but we can be. So there's the fantasy, there's the humility, those two things go together. And with that, we can. The scale of vision required to make renewable energy, like weather-based systems for entire nations go up. You talk about Denmark trying to do some giant artificial island off the coast to make energy that's still got to run an extra hydrogen industry and we don't even have full hydrogen burning generate it's just like it's at that scale that they just build a single epr and they are done like that two epr they're done right nuclear is only large and expensive if your goals are only really really small and you don't intend to get there if you right. put together a multi-trillion dollar Biden climate package and it's like, we're going to build a giant super grid that connects unreliable weather-based energy to cities that need it all the time. And that's going to be reliability because of, or whatever. Honestly, that's the basics of the plan, the way we have it now. That makes nuclear looks really easy. So this fantasy, this right. fantasy, what does it look like? To me, it looks like entities with the planning and execution capabilities of say a a TVA or large vertically integrated utilities, ones that take on all the costs and all the benefits of their projects. Obviously in the end for everything in electricity, it's hand, the risk is handed off to consumers. In Texas, they thought the risk was handed off to private actors who, you know, played the game and, and that consumers didn't have the risk. They just kept prices low. We found that's not the case. In the end, risk and reward in electricity, it has to come back to society. So you have big vertically integrated groups that can look further down the road than five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Then you find who are the Americans who are the most experienced Americans in the world, wherever they are in the world, in operating, building, designing nuclear, you get them home or you get them ready, right? They don't want to come. You pay them to train the next group. You gather up every damn scrap of experience we have that we could possibly call constructive for whatever remains out of the, the, the disaster that happened in South Carolina and Georgia with AB1000s. You get that together and you make a team out of that. You support it. Look, everything I'm talking about is vastly easier than what's being proposed for the next step to really expand the next tier of renewables. Like, I mean, honestly, the prices being put out that we're going to spend on wind power off the coast is you just do nuclear if you if you were doing stuff that big. 
you know, right. just protect the environment, protect the ratepayer, just do nuclear instead, right? So it's a fantasy, but it's a, it's a more believable fantasy than other ways of making that quantity of energy. And it's got this one big advantage. It's beautiful and proven to work, both beautiful and proven to work at the same time. It's like looking at one town's cathedral and thinking, we've got stone too. Mm -hmm. Well, we've looked at Russian cathedrals. Yeah. The humans, the technology, the business deals, the dedication. We've heard about that this hour. Mm -hmm. Now it's our job to take that and do it ourselves. And I guess for me, the, the fantasy is not, you know, which is more feasible, but it is, you know, is, is the U.S. political system capable of reorienting itself in that way? Because, you know, I, I always make this, I mean, I guess I've been developing it recently and borrowing off of Meredith Angwin here and her sort of uh, analogies of, you know, different energy sources as vehicles on a road. But for me, again, wind and solar, it's like bicycles with panniers on them. You're carrying a small amount of carbon-free energy, delivering that down the road, but you got to stop at night. You got to take a break. You got to eat every once in a while. Whereas, you know, building this nuclear freight train that can transport enormous payload of carbon-free energy reliably, um, you know, you got to lay the track, you got to build the train, you got to build the engine. It, it takes a while. It takes some degree of support. And the private sector has not seemed up to that, particularly under kind of current market conditions. And I think you know, we're going to do a show on on the capital side of things, on ESG investment, on freeing up um, flows of capital towards nuclear. But I think that for me is what really stands out as a key difference. And, and that's why I was so curious about understanding Russia a little bit better is the, you know, the big part of this podcast is the politics to make it happen or the politics to make it possible. Right. And I guess that's that's the tension I'm, I'm trying to toy with here in terms of that that idea of a fantasy or not. And I mean, everything can change. But I, I have you you've given this thought, I'm guessing. In the US. And look, we could be dark and cynical here. California can't update its, its legal and bureaucratic attitude towards environmentalism to house its own residents in buildings like housing, but it can completely disregard a century or more of, of um, natural preservation as long as you're destroying the environment for solar as long as you're killing the endangered species for wind, they're able to relax anything, permit anything. There's a billion dollars a year in environmental nonprofit uh, uh, money flow in California, and it shuts up. It is silent as long as you're destroying nature for wind and salt. It is silent, not a word, but don't you dare build a house. No, no houses, only destroy the, right? I mean, I've seen- Ansel, same... Ad Ansel Adams would be rolling over in his grave. Right, exactly. I've seen the same journalists say massive, enormous housing construction, out, uh, housing uh, uh, project outside of LA stop for environment for taking up so much land, and then ignore vastly more, ten times more territory taken up for a, a smattering of, of electricity during some hours of the year. Right? right. So if you can, this is dark and cynical view. If you can get Californians to destroy the environment as long as it's not for people or their well-being then then you can modify almost any political system if your vision is big enough so let me flip that around and be a little bit less cynical sorry i'm i'm going to spend a lot of years recovering from my time in california um i'm going to say this nuclear fits a lot of really deeply held american values and since the, the wealth of a nuclear plant accrues to workers and their unions and the towns that host them, 
since they last for a really long time, these great works last for a long time, it's just a question of getting it started again or getting it organized again, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I say, I say that it is possible in our system. I think that it's really meaningful that President Obama was not able during his time in office or the people working for him, I don't know if Obama cared about TVA, but certainly under his administration, there was an effect, there was an effort to stop it from existing or to stop it from having the characteristics that it has to date. What are those characteristics? Rapidly decarbonizing using new nuclear. And, and I just think that that's a beautiful vision and keeping rates cheap and being proud of it, being proud of a new deal program. Right. That is adding nuclear capacity, right? That is brilliant. I think that's fantastic. And it proves that that something as powerful as nuclear can survive the onslaught of, onslaught of the times. Mm -hmm. Look, and the fact that the, the regulators in Georgia kept improving rate increases to get Vogel built, man, the second that thing turns on and it starts operating at $25 a megawatt hour long run at, what, at whatever it is, it's gonna it's not that's not the cost that's just the operation cost it means that over 10 years 20 years 30 years 40 years 50 60 70 80 90 100 Vogel will make ultra long-term carb low carbon carbon tax proof wealth right. for the people of Georgia so I think that that's going to be an easier thing than the vast appropriation of land and and um construction rights across a lot of the rural parts of America um, to, to make weather-based energy. It's mm -hmm. only going to take one or two Texas, uh, lethal Texas blackouts for um, the, the, the common person to get that there's something really wrong about being weather dependent in our modern time, that we've had three or four generations of not being particularly weather dependent. Yeah. Yeah. Fewer and fewer people die of the weather. doesn't matter what climate change is doing to the weather. Fewer and fewer and fewer people die of the weather. Right. And I don't think there's going to be much practical progress in converting us back to depending on the weather. I think that in that environment, it's going to be pretty easy to sell enough people on a vision of having your cake and eating it too through nuclear. I think we have institutional models in the U.S. We don't have to go to Russia in the U.S. for how it works. Half a dozen shell companies, companies in name only, with not without any real uh, existing nuclear experience, took up contracts for Vogel, failed to deliver, went bankrupt, collapsed, got eaten, got bought, got all the way up to the owner of Westinghouse. You had a layer after layer of clearing out the cobwebs and getting rid of uh, people, names, heritages that had been squandered until finally you ended up with the big B, Bechtel. The last group you call, one, because they're, they're famously expensive and they won't take any construction risk, it's, it's the going word. But two, it's because they finish nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to start. I think that's a stronger foundation than we could have asked for 15 years ago, Chris. I think we're looking better now, not worse. And we'll see. Can we capture energy from the turning on of the AP1000s in Vogel, uh, perhaps later this year or next year? I think we can. I think that young people are hungry for some positive vision, something to de dedicate their time and energy to. And, and nuclear is that. We expand the existing institutions. We use the hard lessons of the last decade. And I think we're off to the races. 
All right, Mark, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks again for coming back on Decouple. Um, we may need to uh, have a follow-up because there's, there's so much more to cover on this topic. Uh, but as always, a pleasure having you on, man. Of course, Chris. Okay, bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.